my partner was saying, oh, we're breathing in dead people mm-hmm. while we were walking around and like inhaling all the stuff. And we were. And that was that was a very sobering moment. We we're like, oh, we are. We're, we're, we're breathing in dead people right now. Like all that smoke. And like we're breathing in dead animals and dead trees and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was quite shocking. Welcome back to I'm the Villain. Today we're going to be talking uh, some climate doom and gloom uh, with my friend Martin, <laughs> well, who uh, I know from college. And so, yeah, Martin, why don't you just like give us a quick little intro, whatever you think the audience should know about you. Yeah, hi. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's nice to be here. Yeah, yeah so I'm Martin uh, Silva. I... I'm a multimedia producer, photographer, filmmaker. I've done a lot of political work. I worked in immigration and criminal justice reform for a long time. And then I made a pivot to climate science and policy. And now I'm doing some, actually I'm doing some freelance work with an environmental organization and looking to do more like local policy work uh, here in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I live. And um, yeah. It's been quite a journey getting involved and thinking about my space in the space of climate and environmental justice. Okay, so 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 Martin, I know that we literally haven't spoken in like whatever, however long since we graduated college is like, when did we graduate? Six years ago? Seven years so, ago? Six, seven years. It'll be seven years ago yeah. in like a month and a half, which is crazy. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it is insane. <laughs> <laughs> totally insane. And like, yeah. I... Uh, I don't remember you being super like into climate related anything like that all happened post-college, right? For the most part? For the most part. Yeah, I, I mean, I did some stuff. Mm -hmm. I was, I was, I was always interested in college, Yeah. but I also had a thousand other interests. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) That kind of like, you know, kind of took me all over the place. Uh, in school um and so i like tried to get somewhat involved um i think like my sophomore year i i i worked at the daily gazette yeah um which you worked at too right yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah which is our school newspaper um but i i was i worked as a photographer and like multimedia producer or editor at the daily gazette and i remember taking photos of events um held by uh i think it was mountain justice yeah uh which was the like environmental uh group on campus one of them that did anti-mountaintop removal actions um and there was a big divestment um action happening i feel like throughout our college time there um and that was for me like the first time that i really learned about the activism and the policy work behind all that stuff and they distributed flyers and I, I read it and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And in 2015, there was the um, climate march in New York. This was like the biggest climate march uh, uh, in recent history at the time. Now, I feel like I think there's been bigger ones, but then it was huge. Um, and I don't know the numbers at the top of my head, but it was like in the hundreds of thousands of people were there and it was a global event. Um, and I went with the group. And I sat and I learned about, you know, civil disobedience from Quaker leaders there. And we walked through what we were going to do. I was there as a 
quote unquote journalist as a photographer taking photos of the actions, taking photos of the activists, like interviewing people. So for me, that was kind of like the, the first like foray into that whole space. Um, but it wasn't really a priority in, in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then we graduated. And, um, and then Trump was elected. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> um, and I was looking for work and I had done a lot of video uh, photography, multimedia. Like that was the space. And I, I was a film major and so were you. Um, right? You were a f- film major or a film minor? I can't remember. Isabel. No, I wasn't a film anything. I was just poli sci. Oh. Yeah. I feel like you were around a lot of the film people. I then. just hung out with Josh a lot. And yeah. Josh was doing a lot of film yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe that's, that's in my head. Like, you're like, yeah. I, you're doing this podcast. It's like, you know, multimedia. Yeah. All that stuff. <laughs> um, in my head, it was like, oh, film. But um, I, uh, yeah, after the Trump election, I, I really wanted to get involved in politics and like, find a way to merge my storytelling, video, photography work with something political. Uh, and I found a job on the West Coast in California uh, doing immigration reform uh, as a multimedia producer. So like doing storytelling and videos and short documentaries, explainer videos, animations, ads for this basically a, yeah, a political advocacy group with a set of lobbyists that did lobbying for progressive um, immigration reform federally and at the state level. Uh, and so that took me out west. Uh, and eventually the organization also started doing criminal justice reform work, uh, not federally, more state by state. And I was there for four years. And that was great because I was able to do like really, you know, immersive, human centered storytelling with people whose lives were being impacted by pretty bad policies by the Trump administration at the time. Yeah. Like family separation and increased deportations. Uh, and DACA, which is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which is a program started by Obama through executive order in 2012, um, which was then rescinded by the Trump admin in 2017, uh, September 2017. Uh, and so we spent basically four years, and that fight is still going on with my ex-coworkers to get uh, permanent protections for DACA recipients. At the same time, California, this beautiful place that I had like grown up hearing about and like visiting once or twice and now had the privilege of living in, even though it was awfully expensive, uh, (laughs) but beautiful. I mean, I I lived in San Francisco and then I lived in Berkeley. Um, I moved to Berkeley basically like six months after I moved to the area and it was great. I mean, love Berkeley. Um, California was in the... Ironically, like, it's weird because California, when I moved, had just left a drought, like a six-year drought that lasted from 2010 to 2016. It was a huge, I think, I might fact-check those numbers. It might have been 2010 or 2012. Anyways, it's a huge drought in California, intense restrictions on water use uh, under the previous governor. I think it was Governor Brown, uh, now the current governor, Newsom. Governor Newsom. Anyways, huge drought. And the drought had kind of ended because there'd been a big period of rainfall and the reservoirs had gone up. Actually, some of the reservoirs, one reservoir in 2016, it was a dam in Northern California broke 
the levee broke and flooded this whole area because there's just too much water. Mm. Uh, and so that was like, oh, wow, okay, the drought is clearly over. We're good. Um, six months later, in fall of 2017, all these fires erupted across California. And same in 2018, same in 2019. And very quickly, the state was declared in, in, a, in a drought uh, emergency again because like all the water went away the summers were getting really hot really dry living in california for me was the first time that i lived through the impacts of environmental disasters that had a clear connection to climate change uh like those big fires um that happened all over northern california and destroyed entire towns killed a lot of people and the smoke of which made it all the way to the Bay Area. And so, like, everyone in the Bay had, you know, N95s before COVID was a thing because we <laughs> had to, because we had to wear them to go outside because the smoke was so bad. Um, we were in the purple zone for days at a time of air quality, and purple is the worst. Um, so we were like basically locked in and, you know, close all the windows and maybe even put tape on the windows because you could smell all the fire smoke inside. Um, and walking around once one afternoon with my partner, she said, um, we were talking about the fires and how this town up north California called Paradise uh, had burned to the ground the whole time. Just, <gasps> That's you know, symbolic. You hate, you hate yeah, this. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it <laughs> was really it symbolic and like tragically ironic that <laughs> this town called paradise turned into hell basically mm -hmm. right for like all these people uh and the entire town was wiped out in a matter of you know hours mm -hmm. um just because of the winds the prevailing winds pushed the fire into the town and just a wall of fire just went through the town yeah, and swept burned everything um and i think like Back to me and my experience, my partner was saying, oh, we're breathing in dead people mm -hmm. while we were walking around and like inhaling all the stuff. And we were. And that was that was a very sobering moment. We're like, oh, we are. We're, we're, we're breathing in dead people right now. Like all that smoke and like we're breathing in dead animals and dead trees and all that. Mm -hmm. um, that was quite shocking. Um, so, yeah. And that for me, like. Facing that and seeing that impact in my life and seeing the impact on other people's lives across the states and then comparing that and thinking and reflecting on that with the people that I was talking to through work um, and, you know, like back to Madam Justice and thinking about those conversations and, and all that, I kind of threw me in the deep end of like, what's happening? What are we doing? What are we not doing? What's yeah. being done? And that the kind of like that started like 20, 2018 really started this journey, this personal journey for me of like trying to learn as much as I could about climate change and, you know, uh, climate change uh, solutions and problems and causes and policies uh, and the history of it. And I went on this deep dive of reading all these books about it and trying to like really understand uh, what was happening and who was responsible um, and who wasn't responsible and what we could do about it, um, which I kind of continued for years while doing my work. Um, and you're like immigration work. Yeah, my immigration yeah. work and my criminal justice work. Mm -hmm. And then in 2019 decided, OK, like I'd been at this organization for three years at that point. 
And I was like, it's time for like new steps for me. I was just felt like it was time to move on. And, and I was looking at, I was like, I want to go to grad school to like learn all I can about climate science. I want to like spend a year to like dedicate uh, my time to learn about climate science, learn about climate policy um, and all that. And then mm -hmm. in 2019, and I think it was October, um, we had an even bigger fire right next to the Bay Area. Actually, there were two fires on either side of the Bay Area, which pushed, and the winds pushed the smoke into the Bay. And this is, this is like, have you seen Blade Runner 2049? No. Okay. Well, it, it, it's a great sci-fi movie. <laughs> so if ever, <laughs> if you, if you, if you like Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford and dystopian sci-fi, it's a great film. But not to give any spoilers, in, in the film, there's a scene where the, Ryan Gosling's character goes to Las Vegas, which is in the desert, or some Las Vegas-like city. I'm not sure if it's actually supposed... I think it's supposed to be Las Vegas. This is in the future, so who knows. Um, and it's desolate, and there, I think there, there was like a nuclear bomb set off there. Or something. But it's like the area is contaminated and toxic, and he walks in. And the whole scene is orange. And this is like really weird orange mist. Mm. And it's really like, it looks like the surface of Mars, basically. Yeah. It's very eerie. And you know, there's all this dust and he's walking around and there's like things moving. Eerie. So sometime, I think it was October 2019, everyone in the Bay Area woke up to Blade Runner 2049 oh, yeah. I remember these pictures of it. Right? Yeah. Like yeah. I feel like these photos orange. like went everywhere. Yeah, they definitely did. That was surreal. Like it was eight thirty a.m. and it it was it was dark as you know nine p.m. Right. Mm -hmm. It was very very weird, um, and it was surreal and it was like super scary. It was like it looked like the end times. You know, yeah. I was like, this is it. Like yeah. the four horsemen are here. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, it, it's happening. Um, so yeah, that was, and that for me just like I was like okay, I like need to. I feel I felt like I needed to do something about this. At the time, I also got involved with a local chapter of the Sunrise Movement. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah. They're, yeah. yeah. So, um, and I did some some stuff with them and trying to like you know do local work uh, on climate because there's and that's and that maybe that's for later in the conversation, but like that's kind of where I'm more drawn to now is more of the climate the the local aspects of climate adaptation and climate policies. Um, but so that was really interesting for me and then i was like okay well i still need to go I, I i felt like i still needed to go to school for that not that i i didn't have to go to school for it but i needed a break from my job and then COVID happened and i defer yeah and then i was like well i'm not going to school remotely so that's not happening um and then and then my partner moved to say minneapolis which is why i'm here now um but i stayed in the bay because i still had my job and then deferred and then started my grad program in 2021. Oh, okay. Yeah, so like I instead of starting in 2020, I started in 2021. And, and now then, you're done. And now and I finished in June 2022. Yeah. Yeah, yes. and have been done since then. So, yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, like what do you what do you what is what is what is, a, what is the average person to do? about climate action like what is what should we be doing like you know? did anything you learn in your school give you like some <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay, like this is what we need to do what's the what you know what, what 
how should we how should we play this the average human (laughs) (laughs) okay because i'm in this like climate bubble and this environmental bubble on Mm -hmm. my social media and in what i write like it's i think and whenever you're in any bubble it's easy to be like well everyone knows this so like everyone's aware of this conversation that's happening so i don't know you know, I, I can take a step back and be like, no, of course, people who like aren't involved in like climate or environmental like thinking, like they don't know what what's happening in our, in our own little world. And there are worlds within that world that I don't, I'm not even aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I bring this up, like maybe yes, of course, people know about this, but maybe they don't. And so there's this idea of reducing the emphasis on individual action mm-hmm. when it comes to climate. Mm-hmm. action or environmental actions yeah um that has been a trend and a conversation that's been taking place in the climate space i think for a while now um just because like an emphasis on what the individual can do um can lead can lead to people thinking oh this is an individual problem when really yeah, it takes it's like it takes the heat off the corporations exactly it's like a it's a societal problem it's a like national and local government problem uh it's a corporate problem it's an international problem of course of course all these entities are made up of individuals and so like to say we shouldn't em- like overemphasize the role of the individual doesn't mean we should ignore the role of the individual the role of the individual is very important and so to me, that looks like getting educated, understanding like, you know, what's causing climate change. I, I mean, like some people don't even know what is causing climate change. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it like I think a lot of people in the space take it for granted that like it's obvious, like, oh, it's CO2 emissions. But like I think a lot of people just don't even know what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I'm not saying I'm not saying like, oh, we need to go out and educate everyone. But I think like, you know. Approaching conversations about climate change with people who don't really know what it is with like empathy and understanding and knowing that like not everyone has access to that information or understands the scientific basis between like global warming uh, is like a great step to start. Like as as an individual, just be empathetic when you're talking to other people. Um, And that's one thing. Um, But I think like in terms of individual actions, I think, you know, getting a sense of what is happening locally is a great place to start. Hmm. Getting a sense of what's happening in terms of like local air quality control in your city um, or how, you know, water is being used in the city. These aren't like climate change specific, but something I and a lot of people I know in the climate space like to say is it's all connected, (laughs) you know? And it is like, you know, Reducing environment, like local environmental pollution, reduces overall pollution, which reduces overall CO2 and other, um, you know, gas gas leaks into the atmosphere, like methane or yeah. things like that, um, and also makes life better where you live. Well, uh, also, and- like we all live in cities, right? Uh-huh. And like from my from my understanding, like if if people like there has been a concerted effort amongst um, groups like like the compact of mayors for example which is a group i used to do work with like you know many many years ago um 
you know, if everyone who just lived in cities, like, got all of their, you know, sort of climate missions under control, like, that's the majority of the human population anyway. So, like, a lot of this argument about, okay, what can we get past at the federal level or the state level doesn't necessarily even have to matter if the people in the cities can just get their shit together. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 I think, like... Like, we do I mean, have a disproportionate yeah. impact. Yeah. Right? Totally. That way. Totally. I, I also think that like we, of course, yeah, yeah, we need to do, we need to, it's like all of the above, right? Mm-hmm. Like we need to be doing the federal, we need to be doing the state, especially because like federal, you know, federal grants and like federal money is huge for like, let's say road infrastructure in the US. Mm-hmm. And so if cities are focused on like, you know, removing highways mm-hmm. uh, from inner cities or decreasing like car usage and increasing public transportation usage, so much of that money and funding comes from the feds. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so even if like local localities and municipalities and cities want to, to make those changes, we still need like the federal backing. So the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA of 2022, um, there's millions, hundreds of millions of dollars for state and local funding for projects. Um, but if the cities and the state governments don't want the money, then they won't use it. If there's like, if they're not receptive to actually implementing a lot of these projects, it's not gonna happen. So like, you're right, like we need to focus, the the local thing is so important because like, we need people to be like, oh yeah, this is something we want. Like, Mm -hmm. where's the money, can we get the money for it? And then when the money does come through, then we can move into the implementation phase. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, transportation in the U.S. is like, I was looking this up before before our chat because I was just curious about the latest numbers, but it's something like, oh, I don't remember anymore. Uh, let's see, I'm looking at the EPA. Transportation is 27% of total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions mm-hmm. in 2020. 2020. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Yeah. <laughs> well, know? especially like, given that in 2020 we were also in a literal lockdown majority of the year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and like that, I know, like that the the dip we saw in 2020 mm-hmm. was like surpassed you know, in like April 2021 <laughs> or something. Mm-hmm. Like it yeah. didn't matter. Uh yeah. but yeah, even though yeah, I mean it's all like, you know, it's trucks and trains and I, I think like often people think oh trains are, are so clean but like it really depends on what's powering the train mm-hmm. um, you know it could be coal mm-hmm. <laughs> the electricity that powers an electric train could be derived from coal or burning some other you know hy- hydrocarbon mm-hmm. um, uh-huh. so which is a sorry a fancy word for fossil fuel um, mm-hmm. but um, <laughs> yeah so I know I think yeah focusing on, on local policy and what you know what I was interested what was happening even at, at Swarthmore in college mm-hmm. uh, was this local activism and asking, you know, the whole divestment conversation in college. And mm-hmm. this is a, a college movement that happened around the time we were there um, in school was like finding ways to apply financial pressure on the fossil fuel industry. Uh-huh. Um, and that's a local thing. Like, I don't. Fossil fuel companies aren't going to divest from fossil fuel projects, you know, unless there's a financial incentive to, mm-hmm. or a legal requirement to. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and that's like that's local work. That's organizing. That's you know, going to hearings and 
calling your representative and all that stuff. Yeah. I know. Are Within sure? our system. I Are know. you sure that we, there's no like magic bullet I can pull to make it all better at once? <laughs> <sighs> I know, man. I was talking to, I was talking to my brother-in-law. Okay. This is a, this launches me in a whole different, <laughs> because we all want the magic bullet. Yeah. You know, like that'd be great. Like, give me the werewolf give me the silver bullet you know yeah uh, I'll take but it also day. you know violence is not the answer um <laughs> but uh but maybe you know i don't know i don't know i don't yeah, know but um not at least within the system we live in but many like climate climate change is violence anyway you know i like in a, right. in, a, in a in a way it is violence and it's violence on us and it's violence on future generations and on you know the hundreds if not thousands if not millions of species that are going extinct yeah. and will go extinct in our lifetime um like that's that's a, that's violent <laughs> yeah. yeah um but anyways um i think like th that question brings me to climate anxiety mm -hmm. which which like you know i know I'll, I'll speak personally because I think this is a very personal thing for 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 everyone who goes through it. Like depression, when I when I was depressed and I was depressed for a long time about climate, but also just about other stuff in life. Like all I wanted was like for it to end, and I wanted like just the I wanted the the the, the magic bullet, like the solution. Yeah. But like there wasn't. I didn't find that. It just it was years of work and therapy and you know conversations and thinking and like in a way finding ways to live with it. I think in climate anxiety, the way that I've experienced it is this like dread, this like existential yeah. dread of the future and like not feeling like I'm doing enough and like not feeling like others are doing enough and wanting this magic bullet thing that will just fix it or, or if anything, make my dread go away. Um, yeah. Which then allows me to like, you know, be happier or more productive or I don't know, just live. Um, I was talking to my brother-in-law a few months ago and we were talking about climate dread and climate anxiety uh, and the stress and w individual responsibility and what, what can we do um, and he said you know I think we just need to like live our best lives and try to do the best we can mm -hmm. and be mindful and just try to try to keep living without you yeah. know, without trying to be to get too depressed about it. Yeah, um, it's hard because and it feels like it feels like if we yeah. all did that, then the status quo would just happen, right? Like someone has to be some someone has to to be a pusher, you know, like. But I I mean I think in general I agree with you though, you know, like it's one hundred percent. And that was my first reaction when he said destroy that. Destroy your life over, right? Destroy your like you shouldn't let it rule your situation. Well, that was, that was my first response. Well, that was my first, like, it was like my gut reaction to when he said that. I was like, yeah, but like then the status quo doesn't change. And like everyone's keep doing their thing. Because like that's what we've been doing. We're like, oh, let's just do the best life and keep doing as much as we can. And <sighs> which then kind of brings it up to like, okay, what's the corporate responsibility? What's the governmental policies that we can enact? Well, um, well, this is this is where I really would like, you know, to know if you have some advice as someone who kind of like 
both has been to school for climate policy and then also has, you know, has these conversations and is tapped into climate circles, right? Like, I, I don't know if either of you have literally tried to go on a state government website and try to track a bill. Like, it's fucking terrible. Like, <laughs> I, so right now, this is something that, that I, I'm trying to do for... Um, I work in death care, Martin, and so one of the things that people are trying to legalize in each state is human composting, which is considered uh, to be basically more environmentally friendly and sequesters more carbon than cremation or <laughs> burial, for example. Um, so there's like all kinds of states that are like, you know, looking into these. And so one of the things that I'm really curious about is if you have advice to people on like if, if the main goal of, uh, you know, or the main uh, thing that we can do is to be more civically engaged, what are ways that we can like make that easier for people to even try to understand what policies to support and like how because a lot of these issues are like quite difficult i would say from a technical standpoint to understand you know what i'm saying i, I do know what you're saying um i or i think i do at least and i'll just try to answer i am i mean i'm like huh I, what's what's human compass that sounds really interesting yeah <laughs> i want to learn about that but um well, well, okay, well, just to speak for one more second on that, the thing that has been so difficult for even me to f figure out as someone who literally knows people who, like, work, you know, as funeral directors and who, who work in that space is, like, trying to figure out how do they even calculate, for example, like, the the actual carbon sequestered versus, you know, carbon emitted, like, calculation right because like there's all of these different factors that you could be looking at when they're doing these calculations where they're like oh well you know we could basically say that by doing this method you're not doing cremation so are we going to add you know like the the uh potential carbon that you would have emitted from doing cremation into our calculation right for how much right or are we going to include like there's all kinds of like um, like basically feedstock that they put in when they're doing human composting that you have to like basically to turn someone to dirt you have to put in like alfalfa and wood chips and like you know basically organics like material right mm -hmm. and it's like okay well all that had to grow somewhere it had to be trucked into the facility and then it has to be put into the thing it has to be turned like there's all kinds of processes involved and it's sort of like how do you actually decide what to include in your calculation it's like massively complicated and obviously all these companies that are doing it have a financial incentive to make it seem better and like all of these things right um so like even something that's like very circumscribed as like you know this particular like way of <laughs> method of disposition for human bodies is like i as someone who's like pretty deep in the weeds on a lot of this stuff it's like still very difficult to figure out like what is the actual real impact and what's people greenwashing essentially yeah the greenwashing thing is like so real and so mm -hmm. serious and it's like such a plague on so many of these conversations i feel like just because right. like of that financial incentive to mm -hmm. say things um like in the case of and I'll, I'll get to the question but like in the case of fires for example mm -hmm. um a bunch of these companies that do uh tree planting uh you know like uh carbon totally. credits yeah um 
owned or like, you know, preserved forests, like owned forests in Oregon and Washington and California. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the biggest example I can think of is Microsoft spent like 200 like something like $23 million on carbon credits in 2017 on these huge tracts of forests in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And then the forest burned. Mm. All gone. And so those carbon credits are worthless now. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and, you know, like, do, you know, do they, and there's, there's a lawsuit and there's all this, you know, like, and then all these questions of like, well, was it even worth doing all that stuff? Like, did we sequester any carbon? Was it just a fake carbon credit? Um, is it greenwashing? Um, I know sometimes I feel like fears of greenwashing get in the way of like actually getting good work done, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but we live in a society that wants to know with absolute certainty if something is like good or better bad. or not. Yeah. yeah. Good or bad. It's a very binary, right. Mm -hmm. Um, before even like starting to do it. Um, I personally don't think every single person on earth needs to be a climate activist or like an environmental activist. That's not necessary. Like much like not everyone needs to have, you know, an opinion on every single issue <laughs> and like be act, be act, active on that opinion uh, and, and on that issue. Um, but I think that like, what I think needs to be more part of the conversation in terms of like climate and environmental policies is asking people to think, okay, what it is that you care about? Whatever issue that you care about. And then helping them understand how it connects to other issues and the impacts of those other decisions on their life. So if we're thinking, you know, like for the example of the, the, the human compost, you know, like what is it that people want, you know, like when they, when they want human compost, human mm -hmm. composting? I think there's definitely a lot of people who are interested in like the climate mitigation aspect of it or the, you know, the carbon sequestration um, yeah. element of it. Um, but, you know, there's also people who just like the idea of becoming a tree or whatever, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, and that's yeah. fine, right? Like that should be as valid sure. as like the environmental d discussion, right? Totally. Um, and like, I think like honoring that and making sure that those people feel like that's good and that's just the reason is like is okay um but i think like yeah just i don't know thinking big picture and long term about the the impacts and consequences of policies is like it's hard because we don't i don't think humans in general aren't very good at <laughs> thinking like generationally in terms of their impacts day to day um but it, that's very important especially in this moment right now as we're thinking of like you know, we're talking 20, 30, 40 years of, you know, reducing emissions and reducing car usage <clears throat> and, you know, reducing flying and, you know, international shipping and all these things while also wanting to make everything green and eco and eco-friendly. Uh, and there are consequences to that, like mining and, you know, exploiting more resources out of the earth. Um, things that we will need to do if we want to have enough minerals to like, you know, put uh, a, a battery in every car. 
that we have? Or, you know, like, do we reduce car usage? And, you know, it's like, I think people really need to ask themselves what it is that I ultimately actually want and, and just act yeah. on that. Well, I guess for you, um, like, what what do you consider to be, like, the climate policies that you, like, care most about? You know? That's a good question. That is a good question. I, I'm, I'm pausing and thinking because I'm kind of, like, right now, I'm in a... I'm in the season of thinking and like, I, I'm in, a, I'm in like the fall right now and like in my head and in my life, like I'm in a season of like, okay, the leaves are falling and I'm like reflecting and, and like, I know winter just ended and like we're in spring, but like, I'm in this phase of like thinking and, and asking myself a lot of these questions that we're, we're talking yeah. about now. Okay. Like, what is it that I care about? What, where do I want to see my work going? You know, I think like, you know, personally, okay. What, one thing that I, I know I, I hold dear to me is like public transportation. Mm -hmm. That's just something that I care about that I think like needs to be more available in the United States. It, it needs to be electric. It needs to be low cost or free. <coughs> um, and like we need to like invest in infrastructure for that, like at, at large scale across the US. Um, uh, because that'll one reduce, help reduce like local pollution in areas. Um, and uh, hopefully give people more access to transportation and work and hopefully also reduce car usage. You know, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully is like, <laughs> there's a lot of hope in there. Um, but like, you know, I don't know, y'all, like, it's tricky. I think everything is nuanced in these conversations, like, I think we should be using a lot less cars than we do. That's just a, a huge thing that like, you know, I, I feel strongly about. We should be using less cars and we should be flying a lot less. Yeah, for sure. Um, just in general. But that said, I also don't think that we as individuals should be going around shaming people for using their cars or for flying because that gets us back to the individual responsibility versus the like, you know, the, the state responsibility of actions. And within those conversations are also, there's like climate, climate issues, like they're so intersectional because everything connects mm -hmm. to them, you know, like telling someone like, Oh, you should drive less. Um, well, actually, telling someone anything doesn't really work. Like, we need to ask people, why are you driving mm -hmm. so much? Because then we understand, oh, maybe, like, you don't have access to public transportation. Or, oh, your work is, like, 40 minutes away from home. Or, oh, you need to, like, drop your kids off at school and, like, get groceries. And, like, you don't have any other way to do that. So that person is going to keep using their car because they have to. Because of the, the world and the society that we live in. Would it be different if they had a grocery store next door? Or if there was, like, you know, a public, uh, you know... Uh, a carpool sharing system for the kids to drop them off or all these things like will get us to the goal of like reducing car usage and like, you know, increasing public transportation use. So that's kind of what I mean. I myself am trying to find those yeah. connections. Like when I'm like, and that, that gets me back to like, what do, what is it that people actually care about, you know? And like thinking of like all the connecting threads that get us there because it's easy to come up with like quote unquote solutions to problems. 
but then if you apply those blank blanket, then you risk, you know, cutting a bunch of people out of, you know, the progress that you're trying yeah. to get to. Uh, and I'll, I guess I'll, I'll put progress in quotes too, because like, you know, who defines the progress? Who's the progress for? Um, well, also, know. it seems like a lot of the progress <laughs> yeah. that's being made right now, for example, like the fact that we're transitioning to ro- remote work for a lot of white collar jobs seems almost incidental. Like, it's not like we were doing that for <laughs> the climate. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> we're just doing that for our own convenience. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, you know, people aren't going to start making, you know, like people do what's convenient for them you know like i don't know that's like that's always that's that's always been on my mind like in and we're not always been the past couple of years like need to make saving the yeah. world convenient then, for people <laughs> need to make it the yeah. better option yeah well okay i have a question for you around what if you had to help people like if, if people were like martin i would love to figure out how to increase my own climate literacy. Do you have particular like sources that you go to? Do you think that that do particularly good climate journalism or have good climate information that you trust? Mm, I do. Yeah. Um, I will. Okay. I, I can share some stuff. I will. What I will do is maybe I don't have to, but I feel like I do. I will preface this with I think that how you, this is true for, I think, any field, but how you enter the field may or may not really affect the way that you see the field and think about the field, especially when it comes to climate. And me personally, I think of climate change and environmental justice as like very connected. Um, So that's like my bias. In, in approaching this and like, you know, looking at that is like, what are local climate impacts? What are the local environmental impacts? How do they connect to like the global climate and how do those connect and how do they a- affect life on earth? Um, so, but like, for example, for me, the seminal book, <laughs> the, the work that like really got me amped up about all this uh, is called This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate by Naomi Klein. Uh, this changed everything like really opened my eye to like all the connections between industry and politics and NGOs and kind of like how capitalism has fueled the climate crisis that we find ourselves in and kind of goes through the whole history of what's happened and what hasn't happened. Um, and it was great for me to like put that into the frame. She's, she's very left and like you, you feel that in her writing. Uh, And so that's her angle. And so I think like, you know, when I read it, I was also very left. And I mean, I still am, but like, I was like, yeah, this is like validating my beliefs and I'm feeling amped about this. And uh, she wrote another book called On Fire, which came out, I think in like 2019. Um, And I read that too. And it's very, very similar, very activist-y. And she's also activist-y and involved. Um, So very powerful, very strong, uh, but very good. Less advocacy based more science based is a book called the sixth extinction um and i can't remember the author's name right now um but that's very good and that's kind of uh, elizabeth colbert is her name um that's kind of like explaining 
basically what's happening with species on the earth and like why they're why they're disappearing and how like local climate and environmental changes are pushing species to the brink of extinction which scientists call now the sixth extinction there's been five major extinctions on planet earth um mostly volcanoes asteroids you know um co2 changes with the ocean and the atmosphere um and now humans <laughs> is like the, the sixth one and like our anthropogenic emissions uh, and like those associated changes. So like those are good books. There's a, I think the Vox, uh, Vox Media, Vox's climate coverage is great. I love reading their stuff. The Guardian has really good climate and environmental explainers uh, that I read a lot. Grist, which is an American nonprofit uh, environmental climate paper they focus solely on environmental and climate issues fantastic uh, so it's g-r-i-s-t um they're great they have really good environmental justice coverage which i appreciate um and yeah those are like many of the sources that i read on like a consistent basis new york times is also really good i think they do like really good climate stories i for me <laughs> like a highlight of my graduate school in climate science and policy was was learning how the weather works. I'm not saying everyone needs to learn sure. how the weather works, but it was very cool to learn how clouds form and how like, I feel like these are things I learned when I was in like primary school <laughs> and then I just forgot. But I learned, I learned them again through like a very scientific, like data driven lens. And I was like, oh, this is very cool. Like this is how clouds form. This is how like heat affects clouds. And like, what's a, like a wet bulb temperature when like the humidity and the temperature are high enough that like we can't sweat anymore. Mm. And then like understanding, and then we die because we, we cook ourselves to death. Really, really dark, really grim, but like it's happening in places more and more. And so when heat waves happen and humidity is very high, you get this like wet bulb temperature and when it's high enough, when it hits 35, then people can't sweat anymore. Um, and that's when, you know, you should go inside and like get AC or drink a lot of water. And, Wait, and what stuff. is but, causing like, understanding... them not to be able to sweat exactly? Like the sweat just evaporates? The the sweat can, so when we hit a wet bulb, wet bulb temperature of around 35, the air, around us is so saturated with humidity that our sweat can't evaporate. Oh. And so we kind of just like cook because sweating like cools us down. Um, and so with enough, with enough time, you'll just, you'll, you'll die. You'll pass out, you'll have a heart attack yeah. or something. Uh, and, and that's why like a lot of elderly people and like sometimes children die during mm -hmm. heat waves because their body just can't process the heat. Um, and it's happening more and more. And this sounds really bleak, and, and it is. <laughs> but I mean, that's literally um, like when know, we talk like, about climate change and people dying, this is what we're talking about, right? We're talking about this, we're talking about people yeah. dying floods, we're talking about people dying forest fires. Yeah. Like, that's what it yeah. actually looks like, right? Which yeah. I think is yeah. an important thing that's for people to associate, like. right? Because climate change can be a very <laughs> yeah. amorphous concept. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, it totally is. It's, if, you, if you don't experience it, it's totally removed from like reality. Um, yeah. And like, you know, Oh, man, I'm I'm looking outside right now, and I know how how the weather is for you guys where you Gross. are, but shit, there's still snow here, and there's Gross. a lot wow. of it. Um, <laughs> we got snow like late February, early early March. We got a bunch of snow. Um, it snowed like on March 
18th, you know, like two days before spring. Um, but that's the Midwest, you know, and like, I haven't heard a lot of people go, oh, climate change, you know, like, which you hear when there's snow and the whole thing. But like the Texas yeah. freeze that happened in 2019, yeah. I think, 2020, that was like directly climate yeah. related, you know, uh, like crazy events like that. Like this was this was a lot of I think it was like a lot of moisture and heat, like changed the polar vortex that goes around the arctic and, and like kind of pushed it and so all that cold air went down into mm -hmm. texas and that's like that's scientists since then have like clearly tied that mm -hmm. to climate change and so it's exactly events like that it's not just heat it's not just flooding it's also like deep freezes in places that don't aren't supposed to get deep freezes <laughs> yeah. very often um and people don't people don't make those connections mm -hmm. so there's a great there's a great show called uh drilled um by i think it's amy westervelt she's an american journalist uh talking about oil and the history of oil and gas and, and kind of like all that it's in the name a little bit um uh i i like that and that is a very very good that i highly recommend this podcast to anyone uh listening and and to you guys um is called uh scene on radio it's S-C-E-N-E -E on radio. And the whole show isn't specifically about climate change. Their last season is on climate change and like kind of a climate story and how we got to where we are. It's a great, fantastic show. Each season is about a specific theme. Um, highly recommend it. Um, very bingeable. <laughs> um, and yeah, the and, and just like really interesting. And I think it's also a good intro to a lot of these topics. Uh, it's it's done in a way that brings people in and like explains issues and and like the specific science of it uh, in in a way that's really well done. Um, that's what I'm looking for yeah. because I do think that like uh, I feel like I'm part of a demographic that like doesn't really need the storytelling. Like I'm I'm already convinced on like an emotional level. I feel like that's how you get people in the door, and then it's sort of like okay, but if I'm actually trying to understand like climate policy like what you know what is the effect of a tree gonna have versus like this giant you know uh carbon sequestration plant in iceland versus you know whatever right like that's what i'm trying to figure out right and even as a very highly educated person i feel like that's quite difficult um to do you know <laughs> so yeah. that's why i very much appreciate like all of these recommendations for sure yeah uh, yeah it's it's tricky and even like, I mean, like you, you bring up the Iceland, like carbon sequestration plant, like stuff like that is even for, even for us, like even for me, like who has studied, I mean, look, I, I studied some of it like for a year, like even for like the PhD students that I was talking to at Scripps, which is this place I, I got my degree in, who are studying, you know, climate changes and carbon sequestration. Even some of that stuff is like very mm -hmm. nebulous and like unclear because it's very new science. A lot of it is untested on a large scale um and like i'm not sure if a lot of people right now would say that like the benefits outweigh you the know, cost the the cost mm -hmm. right now there's a lot of the like oh it, it can if we invest in it but that's like what i was saying earlier it's all it's all very hope based well and it's like we already <laughs> have hope trees, is great right <laughs> 
Yeah. I do think that some of yeah. it, it's hard yeah. to like, as somebody who is coming from the, uh, I worked part of my career in the international development space. Like, the, it's a very frustrating thing to me when a lot of people are vying for this grant money so they are incentivized to do like the sexiest thing when often the better solution is the cheap unsexy thing right like we don't need to give refugees aid in ethereum we don't need to deliver vaccines by drone like we really, literally just need to buy like millions of diarrhea pills you know <laughs> yeah and so like i really <laughs> wonder if like the orca plant or whatever in iceland is just a glorified tree you know yeah it might be i don't know enough about it yeah most of the time you need both though you need like some you know we need like the diarrhea pills and like the tuberculosis pills and we need like the innovative thinking Mm -hmm. i think like we're definitely getting to a point where we're gonna more and more need both like I, i you know Again, I don't work at the IPCC. Sure. Like, I'm not like doing <laughs> like this high level research, like cutting edge and stuff. But my what I what I'm seeing is like we're gonna like more and more we're gonna need both. Sure, if we if we stopped emitting as much as we're emitting now, like 50 years ago, we probably would have been fine with like a yeah. bunch of trees and like solar panels and and wind mm-hmm. and all that stuff, and mm-hmm. that would have been okay. I think like we're getting farther and farther away from that. The problem then is like how do we power this kind right. of stuff? Yeah. Like, is it going to be wind? Is it going to be nuclear? Which is a huge conversation. I think in the in the U.S. right now, yeah. that conversation is reemerging. Yeah. Like, should we reinvest into nuclear? Do you um, do you think we should? Not? Like, yes. <laughs> um, I think should. Yeah, nuclear tech right now I, isn't there. I think but we need to. You know, a lot of people think that like Gen three nuclear could be the thing that like you know solves the energy thing i'm not i'm not opposed to nuclear mm-hmm. energy like I'm, I'm not gonna like immediately vote down a bill um or a policy to get nuclear back on scale in the united states i i i see nuclear as like a necessary i want to say evil because it's not really that evil like nuclear technology has progressed a lot since you it's know not, it's not it started and i no and i don't think it's like as dangerous as people most people think it is um i also just think it needs to be appropriately managed and supervised and there needs to be like really secure um you know systems in place to make sure that things like what just happened in minnesota in november don't happen so in minnesota uh, XL Energy, which is the big, one of the big utility companies here, has a nuclear plant up north. Um, and they leaked something like 35, something like 35,000 or 35 million, <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, so, man, that's a big number, so I'm going to look it up. Um, Some big number of radiation. Some big number... Well, not radiation, really, but like they they leaked. Okay, so four hundred thousand gallons of radioactive water Sick. into, <laughs> uh, and and they and they they told the government about it, and the government just told us mm-hmm. about it. So there was like a five month period ish where like basically no one, the public mm-hmm. didn't know. Like stuff like that shouldn't happen. Like we should know about this stuff. 
there should be immediate consequences to right. that kind of stuff. Um, the scientists right now are saying like, oh, like it's going to be fine. But like we also hear that a lot when like whenever these leaks happen, like, oh, it's going to be fine. And like, you know, 10 years later, people in the neighborhoods like dying of cancer. And it's like, oh, well, maybe maybe there were things that we couldn't foresee. Like this is a tune that we hear over and over and over again, especially with like environmental justice mm-hmm. stories. It happens. Things like that happen. Nuclear does present a lot of issues like that. I also think that like it's possible to clearly manage it. And we know that like nuclear is a fantastic source of pretty clean energy once it's been like it's up yeah. and going and it, it it can do a lot of good things for us. We just need to be careful. Well, I think about it speaks it. to what we perceive um, as dangerous, right? Like a, a a nuclear reactor meltdown looks like very dangerous, but it's from an actual like when you're when you're talking about who is dying and how are they dying and who is suffering and how are they suffering, right? It's just that fossil fuels have, you know, deaths that seem sort of far, far time wise and spatially right from the actual source of like a plant. Right. Absolutely. So if people, you know, if people did draw this direct line connection from people dying in Texas because they're freezing to death. Right. To like coal and natural gas the same way that we would if we were having you know like drawing the direct line between the cancer in you know the the place where this leak happened right it's it's then sort of like how do yeah how do you compare what's more dangerous or not right yeah it's super tough you're right and like whenever i i i used to like to tell this to my partner and my friends but now i don't anymore because i'm like i don't want to be that guy but I'd be like, oh, you know, like whenever you start the car, like the CO2 is going to be in the atmosphere for a mm-hmm. hundred years. Uh, and it's like, okay, Martin, like we get it. <laughs> you know, and I, I like to say that because I had just learned that and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, like that, that's going to keep impacting the atmosphere and, and heating for another hundred years or maybe 150. And if it's methane, it's like a thousand years. Um, so we're, to- we're totally removed from the impact of those consequences. Whenever we turn on the car, we're totally removed from the, 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 the negative externalities mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. what we're doing. And so we don't yeah. think about it. But you're right, the, the nuclear stuff. But yeah, on the nuclear stuff, like the other big thing is the mining. Like we need to mine to get uranium and that needs to get processed. And then like, where are we going to mine? And what communities are going to be displaced? And... Right, which is the same uh, issue with the lithium batteries with, and stuff like that too, yeah. Exactly. It's the, it's the same. And also the oil, right? Like... You know, and the oil and the gas and the coal and, you know, all these things that are happening often are happening outside of the United States. And so we don't mm-hmm. see it as much. We, we may hear about it, but we don't see it as much. But like when we want to mine or, you know, drill in the U.S., we see it. And at least in the U.S., people get very mad about it and angry and opposed to it, as I think they should. Um, I think we should maybe be more concerned about also what's happening abroad because we reap the benefits of like exploitation of other countries and other peoples when it's here, you know, we're not okay with it, but we also not, I, I say we in a very general sense, but like we also love driving our cars yeah, and like, I love know, driving my car ordering on Amazon for like next day delivery and, you know, like getting fresh, you know, berries in winter, you know, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> These are all things that are absolutely unsustainable, mm-hmm. um, but convenient. And like you know, DeAndre is saying, like 
we like convenience and we do things that are convenient because it makes life easy and good. And yeah. I mean, I know I'm speaking from home and the, the heat is on and it's, it's like we have these old radiators and it's heat, you know, it's gas powered. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, and I have a car and I have blueberries in the fridge, <laughs> in the fridge. You know, it's like, you know, I, you know, blueberries but, are in season. Yeah, <laughs> no, they're not absolutely not. Um, but I know, and we all know, but I don't know. Well, yeah. That's sad. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, but, but, you know, I know, I know look, it's not, I, like, it's not that I know, sad. I, it's just a little sad, you know? No, it's not. It's, it, it's kind of like just the reality. But this is why we're we talking like, about the individual versus like the, the company right. level of accountability. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there is a, this has been said by a lot of people, I think, pretty sure. The direct quote, this Bill McKibben is an uh, environmental activist. He founded uh, 350.org, which is a big environmental organization in the US. Um, they have chapters all over, if you're mm -hmm. familiar with them. Um, he has a quote that's something that goes along the lines of, if you want to be an environmental activist or a climate advocate, you're going to have to accept some sort of like hypocrisy. Yeah with sure. yourself and i think that's like that's so important to remember and i think that can alleviate a lot of the anxiety around just like living your day-to-day -day life even when you actually care about you know reducing emissions and ensuring that like future generations and also like future us and present us can like live a better healthier you know or just live a good healthy life in the future mm -hmm. Um, because like, you know, I can say, oh yeah, like I'd love public transportation and like, we should all be using it and I love biking and we should all be biking and I will still use my car, you know, and like mm -hmm. all these things, you know, when I feel like I need to, or when I, when I want to, or when I have to, um, does that make me a hypocrite? Maybe. And maybe that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. Well, at the end um, of the day, and like, still, like, we need people of all classes because like your consumption is primarily determined by your class status, right? To be on board with climate activism. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. The change isn't going to happen. Right? Yeah. I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> this, I look, I also like, yeah, I think you're right. I also think sometimes that like, I, 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 in the US context, it's very different than I think like in the international context for these kinds of decisions because like high level policy, like federal policy, state laws, federal laws, legislation, like that can really affect people's mm -hmm. lives. And for example, in California, and I think it was like 2017, 2018, we had a, we voted on increasing, uh, adding a tax to uh, gas and gas stations uh, to fund, uh, you know, highways. And so every, uh, it passed the, 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 the vote, it passed in, in, 
it was a referendum. It passed. We all got like, it was like 10, 10 cents or 15 cents on, on gas. Everyone voted for that. Gas got a lot more expensive. That affects everyone, right? Like that affected people of all mm -hmm. classes, right? And I, I don't know, I don't know what the class breakdown on the vote was. That'd be actually really yeah. interesting to know, but like who actually voted for this and who did it ultimately affect? Like people are like, people are inelastic to gas prices. As in like, if the gas price goes up, people who, people will still spend money on gas because they need to, mm -hmm. to do so. The rich are fine, they don't care. It's like, yeah, whatever. But lower income families, lower income individuals, like that's a, that's a real suck mm -hmm. on it. Um, but like a lot of the times we're like, oh yeah, like the high level policy is the solution because like it'll affect everyone equally. But of course, you know, the adaptation to that is unequal because people have more money than others. Um, so I don't know. We need people from all classes to be on board. But we also need people maybe on the higher ends of the classes to do less. Less consuming. It, this, this, yeah, less yeah. consuming, right. Less consuming. Like this, this is like, this is a big part of the international conversation on reducing mm -hmm. emissions where we're like the U S is telling India and China to like, stop burning as much coal and stop burning as much oil. And India is like, well, Hey, like you guys had a hundred years of like burning as much as you want to get to like the social economic status that you're at. Like we want mm -hmm. the same. Or are you going to give us like millions or billions of dollars to invest in into, into clean energy yeah. projects? And the U.S. and Europe is like, we're not going to do that. Like that's your problem, basically. I mean, they don't say it like that, but like that's basically the international right. conversation or mm -hmm. the subtext. Um, and we don't see America like, you know, we don't see the the federal government coming down hard on American consumers and saying like you're going to use a lot mm -hmm. less energy because like we need like we need India to like raise up because that seems mm -hmm. unfair um but like that's what quote unquote needs mm -hmm. to happen you know the, the 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 global north the 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 rich wealthy countries need to reduce their emissions and their consumption and global south countries need to be helped in transitioning to less you know fossil fuel intensive mm -hmm. industry but it's not happening because we have so many other issues <laughs> that we need to yeah. deal with. Yeah. <sighs> so I mean, maybe I uh, China will save us. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Probably, probably, I mean, probably not, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, they definitely have better yeah. ability to crack down than we do. What do you mean? On like forcing their citizens to do things. <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. No, hundred percent. This is like totally something that like we, we, uh, you know, like on a very theoretical basis, I talk about with my like, you know, climate policy friends, like, Hey, China, like they locked down a country of a billion people during COVID. Yeah. Like, they did it. That's amazing. And that would never happen here. But also like, yeah, this it's an autocratic regime versus a yeah. democracy. And you know, I mean, like, yeah, they'll always have us beat on that right? front. <laughs> yeah. This whole like yeah. God-given you know, rights thing like, that we that we believe, it's really fucking. It, you know, it's like 
oh, it's like it's sick and mostly, but then sometimes it just really fucks us. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. people just don't want to. Yeah. They just don't want to be we, told uh, what to do. And then we die and burn to yeah. death. People just yeah. do not want to be told. But that's what like to a do. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. The whole ideal the the ideological fight yeah. is tough. Because then when when I'm in moments of like. Right now, like you're catching me in a moment of like, you know what, like the policy is going to work and like we're going to work through this and like it's going to be okay. And then talk to me in like a few weeks or a few months and I'll be like, will morality matter when we're living in bunkers and we're telling our kids what the blue sky used to look like? No, (laughs) you know, like it won't. You know, it's like, well, we'd be like, you know what, at least like the at least the Democrats didn't like you know do the same like tactics as the republicans and like at least we tried to be bipartisan and compromise and sure but like and then you know we burned the surface of the earth because you know freedom of movement i you know i don't know so yeah it's tough though because like that's all all like we're talking you know and this is all very easy to to, to talk about in in theory Mm -hmm. You know, but in practice, like people's lives are really complicated and tricky. And that's why this brings me back to like the local emphasis on policy Mm -hmm. and local policy, because like local policy, you really do get to see the direct impact of like those policies and you get to see it in your life and in your neighbor's lives. Um, And so I think that's a great entry point for people to like see, okay, what's the what's the bigger impact of like policies? And like, you know, and laws and even just like norms, like cultural norms, right? Like like recycling and composting in some cities is like a policy and like you need to compost and like people have compost bins. But here in St. Paul, we don't have compost bins. Mm-hmm. So... People don't compost and the city doesn't pick up the compost. Some people compost because they have the compost bin in their backyard and stuff. But like in Berkeley, where I used to live, compost bins everywhere. Everyone composts, recycling, everyone's really serious about it. So, but it's not just like, uh, you know, you don't have to compost. I mean, you could throw everything in the trash if you wanted to, but people take it seriously because it's not only it's a policy, but it's also Mm -hmm. a norm, right? It's a cultural thing that like people do because they care about it, they believe in it. So, you know, and that's where we're talking about, like, people being receptive to, like, that, that federal money and, like, those projects coming in. That, those are, that's a cultural norm, right? Like, people need to be into it. Um, and so you need to be able to connect with your neighbor and talk about it and see what, you know, people in your city yeah. want. Uh, Martin, thanks so much. For sitting with us hanging out let's see i think today's ending question is going to be um what um what is your least favorite vegetable yeah i'm gonna uh, radishes i i just uh you know I, i'll eat them and i just i just never think of buying radishes and I think that means I don't like them <laughs> very much because I never go, you know what? Sounds great. Radishes. Uh, I will say, though, pickled radishes are really good. Mm. Okay. Well, this is your time. Do you have anything uh, that you want to plug? Any projects you want people to check out? Any Instagrams? I mean, 
if I'm plugging his stuff, <laughs> like the, the, I worked on this documentary as part of my graduate program um, on the Salton Sea, which is the largest lake in California. And it's shrinking due to water resources management. Um, and as it shrinks, uh, it's exposing this toxic lake bed uh, that's filled with like agricultural runoff and pesticides and just me heavy metals. And those metals get picked up in dust storms that go through the area and it's infecting people in the area. And it has been for years and it's a huge environmental uh, justice issue. Uh, and I, so I did a 25 minute documentary explaining the science and interviewing locals in both English and Spanish about what was happening there. Um, and that's been on YouTube for a few months now. But if anyone's interested in climate justice in California, and it's like one of the largest climate justice issues in the US that's kind of like underreported, the Salton Sea is, is a big one. Uh, and if you want an intro to it, I would recommend my documentary. There's a lot of other really great resources there. But I really enjoyed working with local organizers and activists there to like tell their story and then gather information from scientists and you know, uh, more policy and government experts on there. So I would say that. That's not really like a plug plug. It's more like very personal plug. The Honestly, like the other, let's see what, I read a really good book the other day that people might like. Maybe maybe this will be like the actual plug plug. Like it's not, it's not a plug for me, but just like a final recommendation is a book called All We Can Save. Uh, and it was edited by Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Catherine K. Wilkinson. And it's a collection of essays on, essays and poems actually, on climate and environment um, and the intersection of both issues, uh, all written by uh, women in the space. Um, and it's really... It's presented as like an antidote to climate dread and climate anxiety because throughout the essays you get a sense of like the bigger picture and all the work that people are putting in and all the thought that goes into the work. And it, it really is quite like encouraging and um, also a good introduction to what's happening in climate, uh, speci more specifically in the US. Um, so I, I do recommend that. And I actually like left that book on my shelf for a long time and didn't read it because I wasn't mentally ready for it. I was like deep in the throes of climate anxiety. And I was like, I'm going to sit here for a while. And I don't, you know, like sometimes you're like, so in a dark space, you're like, I don't want anyone to save me right now. I, you know, I want to just like figure this out for myself. And as I was emerging from that, I picked this book up and I was like, oh, this is, I, when I read it, I was like, I wish I'd read this sooner. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I, I recommend it. Uh, it's, it's really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And your, um, your website is martinfroger.com, which we'll stick on the, we'll stick on the show notes too. That's right. Yeah. And the, the doc, if you're, if you're interested in the, the Salt and Sea documentary, uh, it's, it's on the, it's on the website, uh, under the motion tab. It's the first doc you'll see there. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's all my other more immigration work on there too, but the that the climate piece is is that one. Um, um I also have to point out that Martin's uh YouTube page has sixty nine subscribers, which is nice. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I so please subscribe so that we can move on from that. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know that, so that's yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now this moment's captured forever on the internet. Oh, God. Oh, um. Well, thank- <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Martin, so much. Um, as always, you can find us at I'm the Villain Pod. That's our Twitter, that's our Instagram, that's our Gmail. Um, otherwise, bye. <laughs> <laughs>